Well, our verse for tonight is James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. And the title of our message tonight is, From an Unbeliever to a Servant of the King. From an Unbeliever to a Servant of the King. So let, let's start with the first word. That's going to be our focus for a little bit, and it is the word James, James, this few words I heard more growing up than the word James. Uh, years ago, I was teaching a youth group through the letter of James or the book of James. It really is a letter. And I stated to the kids, I was only teasing, of course, that the book was named after me, uh, to which one of them raised their hand. And I said, yes, well, would you like to say something? And they said, your name isn't James, it's Jim. And, and so uh, that, is, that is true, and honestly, I am James III, James Joseph III. Uh, my grandfather was James, my father was James, and now I am James. My two boys, uh, their middle names are James, Ryan James and Timothy James. My daughter is Jessica. I wanted to name her Jesse James, but my wife wouldn't let me. So, um, and by the way, my mother is really the only one who calls me James. So you can expect if you come up to me after service and you say, uh, I'm going to start calling you James, I'll just say to you, well, I'm going to start calling you mommy, and then I'll be fine <laughs> because nobody calls me James. James was my grandfather. Jimmy was my dad, and Jim was, uh, was me. And so here's the thing. You could call me Jimmy if you want, um, it's almost like calling me Bob or Tom. I really don't answer to it because that was my dad's name. Uh, going to Catholic school growing up, uh, one year I had an interesting class. I had 12 boys in my class and four of us were named James. So every time the teacher would say James, we would all look at each other like she's talking to you, she's talking to you. So it was, uh, it was very interesting. Why is the name so popular? Well, it's, it's popular because it is a biblical name. Uh, two of the apostles were named James, and as we're going to talk about tonight, so was uh, the little uh, brother, or half-brother, actually. He was Joseph's son, not, uh, uh, and where Jesus was not, the little half-brother of Jesus. Um, let's go over the three Jameses. One was of the trio of trouble that I like to call them. Peter, James, and John. Now, those were the, the closest apostles to James, to Jesus. People always say, oh, they were so spiritual. They were so close. I think that Jesus kept them close to keep an eye on them. I think those guys, he had to be like, they could get in trouble anywhere. Certainly, Peter could. And that James, Peter, James, and John, James and John were brothers. Uh, James was an early martyr of the church. So we don't think he's the writer of this uh, book. Uh, the other one, the other James was another apostle named James. He's known as, this is a terrible name, James the Less. That's what some people call him. How'd you like that? They set up the counseling now. <laughs> I just like, and we don't really know anything about that guy. And uh, the third James, or James the Third, like me, I like to take, uh, like try to be uh, equated to him a little bit, uh, again, was the, the younger half-brother of Jesus, a son of Mary and Joseph, and he's the one that we believe to be the author of this book. Now, you can read a lot of stuff of people who don't believe that. You could probably read, you know, 40, 50, 100 pages, and you're probably not going to be convinced of the arguments that is anybody but him. And the interesting thing about this little brother of Jesus is, at first, he did not believe that his brother was the Son of God. 
You say, how's that possible? Well, let's read the scripture. John chapter 7, verse 2 through 5. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret why he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Uh, as Jesus became popular, uh, the religious leaders were against him. And we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people, some versions say his family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. Some said they, one version, one version says it went, they went to take him. For they said, this is his own family saying, he's out of his mind. Like, don't do anything to him. He's crazy. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 47. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside speaking, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Now, it's interesting. Jesus is inside doing a Bible study and his family pops on the outside. No respect for what Jesus is doing at all. They want to interrupt the Bible study. Hey, stop, stop, stop. Right. And and they come in and they say, we want to talk to Jesus. But. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the risen Christ appeared to James, we're told that he believed, and we're also told in the book of Acts, you can look it up in chapter 15 and 21, that James became a very prominent leader in the early church. In describing the early years of his conversion, the apostle Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 1, 17 through 19. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That's where his conversion took place, where it all started. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James was definitely apostolic in the sense that he had contact with uh, and served alongside the other apostles, and the other apostles recognized him as an apostle. He was, uh, had the requirements of an apostle, the big one being an eyewitness to the risen Christ. And interestingly enough, as Jesus' little brother, he got to see the life that God the Father would say when Jesus was baptized this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Up until that time, Jesus had done nothing really in terms of ministry, in terms of miracles, but he just lived a faithful life uh, in Nazareth with his family and his brother James was there. Now, uh, perhaps you've read about the James dispute. Uh, some people believe that this book shouldn't be in the Bible. It was, it was argued Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. We love Luther, but he was wrong in this one, on this case. And uh, when people say it doesn't belong in the Bible, I would have to say personally, after again, hours and hours of study for me in this, I remain unconvinced. One reason is it's never considered to be heresy or false teaching. 
and it was a book that was used by the early church and considered to be scripture by them. This is one, actually, of the most beloved and quoted books in all of the scriptures, uh, reason being it's so very practical. It's got some things in it that are so easy to remember, and the reason that, <laughs> that some people, I think, don't think it belongs in the Bible is it is so practical, and some people are like, well, it's not very highbrow theology. See, you look at the highbrow theology of someone like the Apostle Paul, and you think, well, this James is not like that at all. And it was not written by one of the original 12 apostles. But we also have to remember, neither was Mark, Luke, or Acts, not written by one of the original 12 apostles. And we don't uh, even really know for sure, we have good theories, but for sure, the identity of the book of the author of the book of Hebrews. Personally, I find the book of James to be extremely challenging. Uh, I would say it's a portrait of the Christian faith, a, port a portrait of living by faith, and it's really a tell it like it is letter. And that might rub a lot of people the wrong way. I mean, some people like, you know, somebody like Paul, where it's just this sort of just thinking and thinking and thinking, and, and there's, there's doing, but you get lost in the thinking. And, and sometimes with Paul, it's not always easy to understand. Even the Apostle Peter said that. He said sometimes Paul can be rather confusing. James is not like that. James is very, very easy to understand and very hard to live. And that's why a lot of people really don't like it. We could say that the Apostle Paul uh, preached the, the, the theological gospel, the gospel of grace, while James preached the gospel of living. In light of what we know about Jesus, how do we live this out? Uh, both James and Paul and all the apostles were, make no doubt about this, very passionate that, about Christian living in light of what Jesus has done for us. You know, a lot of people running around, hyper-grace mentality. Jesus died for all our sins. It doesn't matter how we live. He doesn't really care. You cannot make that case from the Bible at all. You've got to rip out quite a few pages to make that case. It's, all the, it's also the case that all of the apostles believed and all the Bible writers believed that there was an undeniable connection between belief and behavior. You, you, can't, you can't deny that. And again, that's largely lost by many Christians today is anytime you talk of, some people only talk about behavior. It doesn't matter you know, what you think about Jesus. It just matters how you live. That would be legalism. Other people license or, or antinomianism. They think it doesn't matter how you live at all. And neither one of those are true. It is, yes, all of grace, but yet God wants us to walk in that grace and to live for him. So what's the goal of the letter? I guess you could say there's a lot of things that could be said. Uh, many would say, I think, that if you are living a life similar or comparable or in some ways pushing towards what it says in this letter of James, that that would be to you an evidence of faith. And that's true. If, you, if, the, if none of this is like you're not progressing towards any of this or, or you don't care about any of this, I think that you should call your own faith into question. Others might say that 
James wrote this so there might be in the church more good works. Now, if you say more good works for the sake of good works, that's not the gospel. But if you say more good works in response to the glorious gospel and work of Jesus Christ, absolutely true. And the other Bible writers would agree with that. And, and although we are not saved by our works, let's repeat that. We say that often. We remind ourselves of awesome. We're not, often. We are not saved by our works. It's often been said that true faith works. And that's true, despite what some people would say. I guess what personally, I see James as a calling. Maybe it's because we're studying Abraham on the weekends and we're going to talk this weekend about the calling of Abraham. But I see James as a calling to a more radical way of Christian living, a, a new way of, of living for Jesus, a life filled with resurrection power and an increased love for our Savior demonstrated by the way we live our lives. I see James as a book that God will use in our lives to put legs on our faith. God wants us to be a blessing to others, and he wants us to be a blessing to others with honesty and with integrity, not lip service. You know, there's a lot of people, I see people on the news, they're, they're talking about all this stuff that we need to fix in our country. And usually when I hear people th talking like that on the news, this is the question I ask myself. What will it cost them? You see, if it's just talk, anybody can say that. You know, I, I heard a couple of weeks ago, uh, Charles Barkley say that he was talking about some organization. And he said, yeah, you know, I just gave them a million dollars and, I, and I, hope they, I hope they use it well. I mean, it's costing him something. Some people would say, well, he's super rich, but a million dollars, a lot of money, no matter, how you, no matter how you cut it, it's a lot of money to just give to somebody. But I'll hear from people and they'll be just talking about this and that. And I'm thinking, what does it cost you to, to really say that? And for a lot of people, it's not what it costs them. It's what they get out of it. It's they might get reelected or they might have people talking about them or they might get more followers on social media. And so James is going to put legs on our faith. Now, it may be the first book of the New Testament written. If so, other books will build upon it and expand upon it. If you believe in progressive revelation, we learn more as we go along as books of the Bible are written. In many ways, James is very, very similar to what we would call Old Testament wisdom literature. For example, similar to, to Job, to Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. In other words, it's taking faith, it's taking truth, and it's applying the truth of the word of God to our lives. So it doesn't do, it's just not in our head, it's going to be lived out from day to day. Uh, James was known as James the Just. And so in some ways, we're gonna hear him, he's gonna sound like an Old Testament prophet. He's going to be calling the people of God to righteousness. And what's really interesting about James, one of the things I really, really gravitate to in his book is his illustrations. He is a master illustrator, really incredible. Paul is more of a scholar. Definitely, uh, you could see where he would 
he's like a lawyer and he just lays out the case. And when you outline Paul, it's really, it's a lot easier because he's, you know, you know, A, one, you know, A, A, I, I, B. <laughs> it's just very, very easy to outline Paul. But, but James is not quite so much that way. He's truly an artist. He just paints a portrait of something and then he gives you an illustration that really does well to, to bring it home. Now, to be honest, this book is in many ways, again, book, letter, epistle, we use those terms interchangeably. In many ways, it's like the Sermon on the Mount. I've had a lot of people say to me, oh, I just love the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm like, have you read it? And they're like, whoa, whoa, yeah. I'm like, it's impossible. Not, I mean, I love it because it's Jesus, but you can't even dream of living that without Jesus. And so in a lot of ways, this book is like the Sermon on the Mount in this way, that it is so incredibly lofty in its message. And it's so incredibly penetrating to our hearts that it is completely impossible to live it out without the grace of God and the help of God. So, when this letter makes you feel like a failure, and it will, don't do what the natural human inclination is to write it off, to give up, or to even think, well, I do that, I do that. That's not what we're going to do. We're not going to do what the other guy wants us to do who whispers in our ear, you're such a loser. See everybody else around you, they're living this out. You're not living this out. You're not Christian. Forget about you. We're not going to listen to that either. We're going to have the proper biblical response when we feel we, feel we fall short of the message. We call that the conviction of the word of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, in American court, we say, oh, I got convicted. They're like, oh, really? Did you have to go to jail? Did you get a fine or something like that? That's not what it means in the Bible. In the Bible, it means that the charges of the text are brought to our heart. We find ourselves guilty. Why does God do that? He's doing that because he is inviting us into intimacy. He's not trying to push us away. He's trying to invite us in more closely because he is not going to become sinful like us. So the way we get closer to him is to become more holy like him. So when we feel like a failure in the book of James, and we will at various places, what do we do? We fight it off and we call upon the name of the Lord and we ask for God's help. We'll hear something and we'll say, Lord, I feel like I could be doing better at that. I'm not what I was, but I am ho sure hope I'm not what I'm going to be. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank you for gospel. I thank you for the grace of conviction and the grace of obedience, Lord. Help me to be more like you. That is a proper biblical response. The Apostle Paul uh, when he writes, he writes differently. He writes to Gentiles. 
and then he typically will get them to turn to Christ. You don't really see that in the book of James. That's one of the reasons why people really didn't like it. Well, what's the reason? James is primarily writing to Jewish Christians. He assumes they know a lot more than Paul's audience does. And so they know what Jesus is, who Jesus is. They know about the gospel. They know about sacrifice. They know about sin. They know about repentance. And they know, they've been taught for years by all of the apostles that they are to call upon the name of the Lord. So once again, verse 1, James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, we almost always say this, if not always, whenever we come to the beginning of a New Testament letter, that the opening greeting, which we tend to skip over very quickly, is not a good idea. The opening greeting supplies us with clues about the author's purpose. And when you know the author's purpose in writing a letter, things begin to unfold much easier for you. That's why I tell people who, if you have a study Bible, I'm like, you know, they're like, I like to read my Bible in the morning. I say, take your study Bible to you, be with you before you go to bed at night. If you're starting a new book of the Bible and read the, the three or four page introduction so you know who the author is, who they're writing to, why they're writing what they're writing, which is embedded in the text, and that will make understanding it a lot easier for you. And so we want to understand the purpose of the book. Often Bible writers are writing to address the needs of the people. We said this in the letters of Paul, that what, what he would get these letters from the people. They would write to him, telling him the problems they were experiencing. And then Paul would write back to them, addressing the problems. Because sometimes people go, well, why doesn't he tell us the problems that were, the people were going through? Because the people who wrote to him already told him. He wouldn't just rehash to them what they already told him. He's addressing the problems to them. And so they already know them. That's why we don't get these full-orbed explanations that we want, which is actually better because it makes the applications a lot more general. Um, also, compared to the Apostle Paul, James seems like he's in a complete hurry. He's like uh, Elvis Presley, taking care of business. That's what he's taking care of business. He goes right from this verse to verse 2, where he already dives right into the problem. There's no long, flowery type of things. He's just like a bondservant of God. James identifies himself, bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, boom, let's go. Let's get to work. We got a lot of stuff we, got, we, have, we have to do here. And notice he doesn't say that he's the Lord's brother because he knows that his spiritual relationship to the Lord Jesus is far more important than his earthly relationship. In fact, this Sunday, God's going to talk to Abraham about that. Next, James says that he's a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says bondservant. The word, we often say it's cleaned up in our English Bibles because of history. It's actually the word slave. Now, right now in our culture, uh, the word slave has a lot of controversy surrounding it both here and abroad, but particularly in the United States. And 
I think it's probably fair to say that, that slavery in the United States is the low point of American history. And you know what? It is something we need to talk about. It is something that needs to be discussed among people. I, I hope and pray that people can discuss it in, in, a, in a civil way and realize that, that we have to move so far, far beyond that type of, of thinking and, and people who would say that it has an effect on them. We, we need to listen to them. We need to listen to them. People who live in different worlds than we do, whether it's, it's color of skin or it's an ethnic background or it's a handicap or it's anything, economic group, we need to listen to them. And, and to hear what they have to say, to hear their stories. Now, uh, there were abuses of it. I was actually, interestingly enough, uh, around March sometime, I had planned to do a actual message after we had talked about slavery a lot in the book of Colossians and in Philemon. I had planned to do a message on slavery, and then all this stuff broke out. And I was like, boy, the whole world is, is you know, going crazy when the, when the virus broke out. And, and there were Slavery has been a, world fine, a worldwide phenomena for centuries. I mean, it just, it just has. I mean, it just, it's as it's, it's, it's old as dirt, really. I mean, it's been around forever. And it's, it's a word that has taken on different meanings in different places. And there, there were abuses of it in the ancient world. If anybody wants to try and tell you that there were no abuses of it in the ancient world, I find that almost impossible to believe. I won't say you're a liar but I find that virtually impossible to believe. Um, but yet in other places, being a slave, remember words change meaning over time. And words mean different things in different cultures. And sometimes we have to take what, what a word meant in the Bible and we have to come up with a better word for today. Example, the, in the Bible, it says that we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe means something in your head. Well, I believe today was a nice day. Or, you know, I, oh, I believe if you go to that restaurant, you'll get a good meal. But that's not what believe means in the Bible. Believe means really more similar to our word trust. So we believe upon Jesus. We put all our trust upon him and not in ourselves. And so uh, slavery, being a slave, did not carry in much of the ancient world, not all, did not carry our negative connotations. In, in most cultures, it had very little to do with race because it was people from that culture who were often slaves. And it was, it was very complex as there were many different types of slaves. In fact, it would be very common for you to go to the doctor and find out that your doctor was a slave. It would be common for somebody to be schooled and the teacher would be a slave. So many of the slaves were professionals. Uh, in, in the Roman Empire, there were some that were the equivalent. They didn't have prisons like we did. So some were the equivalent of prisoners. Typically, a lot of them worked in mines. Uh, farming slavery was also known. A lot of that associated with crimes that people had for, per, uh, committed. But mostly, when we talk about New Testament slavery, New Testament slavery was associated with household slavery. We might say it was the household help who lived 
at the place of the, of the landowner or, or something like that. And why would this be advantageous for some people? For some people, they wanted to be slaves because their necessities would be provided for. Um, and a- actually, many slaves could buy their way into freedom. Many slaves were set free. If you're ever reading through a, a Bible book and they use the term manumission, that's what they're talking about. It's all right. Look it up on the, in a dictionary. You know what a dictionary is? We just use Google now. Uh, but but you, can, you can look it up. And so many of them were, in fact, set free. Now, some were Caesar's slaves. Now you say, oh, that sounds absolutely horrible. But a lot of Caesar's slaves had considerable power. They were very, very high-powered people. And others sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt or to help other people, to help free other people. So it was, it was very different than what we think about in America. And uh, you know that was just in, in what it was in other parts of the world. Um, so perhaps the best way to think about slaves, uh, as mentioned in the Bible, and people will talk to you about this, is not to let American thinking or American vocabulary be imported into that discussion. We have to really change the way we think about it. Um, also important to remember that different than us, is a lot of times the Bible writers did not narrowly define words as we do. And so here he says, I'm a bondservant of God or a bond slave of God. A bondservant was someone who was a willing servant for life. Someone who wanted to be that because they loved their, so, their master so much. Let's also talk about a word that we use that's written in the Bible a lot that, that means different things in the Bible than it does in our type of thinking. Sometimes we'll, you go to a restaurant and they say, your server will be with you in a minute. And that means the person who's going to you know, give us the meal and if, hopefully if they do a good job, you leave them a nice tip. And you know, don't tell them about Jesus and stiff them on the tip, please. Really, that is bad and no good, no good. But, but well, I told, I left them a track, dumb. That's not, that's, not, that, that's not good at all. A track is in the garbage before you're in your car, trust me. So you want to you treat people uh, respectfully all the time. But let's take, for example, the word servant. Not server, servant. You've heard people say this to the, I'm not your servant. Because in American thinking, it has a very, very negative connotation. James says here, I am a servant of God. Now, for some people, they might find that demeaning. But in the Bible, it's actually a term of great honor. Did you hear what I just said? Servant is not a demeaning term. It is a term of great honor. Words change meaning over time, and words mean different things in different cultures. It was actually said of Moses. Moses was called the servant of God. Now, if you know the Old Testament, Moses was a big deal. Moses was a very big deal. I always say, after I get to heaven... After a million years, when I can't, uh, maybe I've gotten used to the fact that the Lord actually let me into that place because he died on the cross in my place for my sins. I want to beeline to Moses. I'm going to be like, are you kidding me? How did you do that? 
<laughs> I mean, traipsing across the, the desert with a couple million people for 40 years and all they did was complain. You know, remember when they fell into the hole, Moses? Why didn't you, you know, people they came and they complained, they fell in the hole. Why didn't you pray for that miracle every day, man? But he, how did you have that much patience? But he was called the servant of God. The gold standard of all the kings was King David. King David was called the servant of God. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as a servant of God. Peter referred to himself as a servant of God. So what was a servant of God? A servant of God, a servant of the king, were people who were given authority by the king because of their loyalty to him and their humility before him. Let's say that again. They were called servants of God. They were given authority because of their loyalty to God, their loyalty to the king, and their humility before God and before the king. Now, the apostles were bold. Bold does not mean obnoxious. It means they were ready to speak out on behalf of what was right, on behalf of God himself. So in the New Testament, and in New Testament language, and in modern church language, anyone who identifies themselves as a servant is doing this. They are declaring total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are saying, as identifying as a servant of the Lord, they are saying that the Lord is my king, my master, and I serve him with everything that I have and everything that I am. Now, in the Old Testament, from, in Isaiah chapter 42 through 53, has what we call the servant songs ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus, the servant of servants, the servant of all. So when you talk about being a servant, you are in good company. The people who volunteer at our church, we call them servants. That doesn't mean, you know, you just you walk in and you say, oh, you a servant here? That's great. Well, go home and cut my lawn for me. That's not what that is about. That means they are here to serve you as an extension of God serving his people, and they are serving God. So for those of us who would be servants of God, please don't think of servant as a title. And don't even necessarily think of it in terms of action, although it is. Think of servant as a mindset. Being a servant is a mindset. It is a willingness to be available to God and to live according to the word of God. It is to turn away from self-interest and to turn to kingdom interests. And it's also to desire the well-being of others. That is very, very important. Desiring the well-being of others. So it's quite possible that James is using this terminology to put together a few different ideas. He says this, that he's a servant or a bondservant to identify with his audience. But he's also saying it to identify himself as a leader. 
as one of the leaders in the, in the church. Now, I just want to say a word to leaders. I know we were rudely interrupted in March by COVID-19 when we were studying the book of 1 Timothy, and we are, we are coming back to that eventually, Lord willing. And to be trusted as a leader in the church, in God's church, is a very, very serious matter. And it's very, very sad that many people have taken advantage of that. Over the years, people in the ministry have been a lot of times questioned over their integrity, over their honesty, over their purity, over their motives. And that's a terrible thing to have called into question. Now, there's always going to be people who assign wrong motives to you, no matter what you do. Do you understand that? That, that, that's going to happen. You do something nice for someone because you, you care for them, you want to serve God, you just want to do it, and they're thinking, well, what do they want from me? That's just the way some people are. Some people, no matter what you want to do for them, they're paranoid about everything. I think a lot of that has to do with upbringing for most people because they just you know, were manipulated by people or something like that. But, but that's not the way everybody is. But, you, we, but, but other people really do manipulate others. So I'm just going to get up on the soapbox just for a few more minutes. But I think the church needs to stop giving lip service to the idea of servant leadership. I'm not saying we, need, we should ditch servant leadership, but I'm saying that we should stop giving lip service to it because it, we have to admit that over the years, over the century, that the church has been filled with many selfish, not all, but many selfish, and maybe not even the majority, but many selfish and self-centered leaders. Now, we immediately, our minds go to pastor scandals, or we go to the prosperity guys that are ripping people off. But it's not just that. Pastors are known, sadly, again, how much of the reputation is deserved or not, are known for taking advantage of people's time and money. Some of you remember the story when a guy, he used to come to the church here. Uh, I met him in, in Starbucks, and he was not a follower of Jesus. He, he moved uh, out of state. But we would talk there, and I said, hey, man, uh, how often do you come here? Do you want to ever get together and talk again? And he said, well, I really don't have much money. And I said, I'm not asking for money. I'll pay for the coffee, man. No problem at all. And he goes, well, don't you charge me to talk to you? I was like, What? Yeah, yeah, he had met another pastor who wanted to charge him by the hour to talk to him. He called it coaching, <laughs> okay? Well, you know what? All right, you might be somebody and you're, you're established in your field and you might even be a pastor and you're established in your field and you're gonna give your time to coach other pastors who pay for you, who pay for your coaching and your wisdom and your experience. I don't do that, but I get it. I understand it. And in some ways, I don't have a problem with it. But to meet unbelieving people in Starbucks and to charge them 
for talking to them is not right. Now, that pastor since was involved in troubles with the IRS. I'm not surprised. Perhaps not uh, declaring on his taxes what he charged people in Starbucks to talk to him. So there's, but there's been a lot of crazy stuff. And so that people take advantage of people's time and money. Um, also, they sometimes pastors act like they're important to do certain things. Again, I'm not saying that we don't consider highest and best use of our time. That's something that everybody needs to really consider. If you're, if you're part of an organization, if you're the president of a company, and I work for you. If I come to work at your company, you're the president of a company, and there's a decent amount of people there at the company, and, and you're out shoveling the parking lot, I'm probably going to look for another job. Because how is the organization progressing when you're shoveling the parking lot? Yes, that's a great example. And yes, when you were starting out, you had to do stuff like that. I started a number of business entities and, and the church, and we had to do all that. But you, I'm not saying you don't look at... Um, highest and best use of time, but sometimes there's people, they just think that they're too important for just about anything. It's also common among leaders in the church that, that looking good, which is just the fear of man, guides people's words and actions into sin. So, so rather than tell the truth, rather than own up to something, they will lie their way out of it, or so they think. So James could be combining a bunch of things together and saying, God has made me a servant leader, a true servant leader, and I've answered his call. He's called me to be a servant leader, and I have answered his call, and as a servant, he serves. That's what he does. As an apostle... His words are true, and they carry a certain level of authority from God. Something else very important, I think, tucked away in this verse. He says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says that he's a bondservant of God, that's a fairly common title or a fairly common statement. You know, you would say that, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm serving in my church. I'm serving God or something like that. Uh, but the rest of it is not. When he says a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here James does really one of two things. First, he could be equating, certainly seems to possible, as the rest of the Bible writers do in the New Testament, He's equating, and Jesus did himself, he's equating God and Jesus. In other words, when he says a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a packed term, Lord, okay, Jesus Christ. God, man, Lord, God, Jesus, man, Christ, Messiah, the chosen one. And so he's, he's equating them. He's bringing Jesus to the level of God, not that he's doing it, he's doing it in the mind of the readers who, remember, were Jewish Christians and presumably Jews who were being taught this, that, that God and Jesus have the same status 
and he serves them both. You just didn't mention God and other people in the same sentence. It just didn't, wasn't something you really did. Now, we as Christians are completely used to this. We're like, yeah, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, one God, three distinct persons. We're, we're, we're so, we just skip over that stuff. But he's writing, as we're going to see, to Jews. And as a Jew, that would be a dynamite statement. I mean, when, when the Jews were, when the Jewish Christians were telling people that Jesus was God become a man, that was, that was dynamite. In fact, the Greek can also be read a servant of Jesus Christ who is God and Lord. Oh, man. If one was dynamite, the other possibility is a nuclear bomb. <laughs> I mean, that would, just, that would just be like an explosion of, of incredible magnitude to so many people. But not only for Jews, but also for non-Jews, because they believed in many gods, and many people believed. And I fear that some of our country is going the same way, Many of them believed that the Roman Empire was God. And we don't, certainly do not want the state to be our God. And so James closes with the people he's writing to. He says, to the 12 tribes, still in verse 1, which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, this term, the 12 tribes, was originally applied, applied to the 12 tribes, named after the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, who came into the promised land. Sadly, over the years, due to their sin and their idolatry, and we saw this in some of our Old Testament studies that we did on Sundays at the beginning of the year, the northern tribes were scattered by the Assyrians. God warned them. They didn't listen. The Assyrians came in, and they scattered them. The southern tribes, 120 years later, maybe 130 years later, 135 years later, depending upon how you measure the Babylonian invasion, they were scattered by the Babylonians. Some were taken into captivity and some took off. Many times the Lord said he would regather them, and I think that's symbolically demonstrated by Jesus choosing 12 apostles. They say, well, one was a devil. Well, they replaced him. It seems James is reminding these people, and next week we're going to see it's in the midst of trials. He's reminding these people in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of their unknown future, that they are the true people of God in the last days. And Christian, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, what I mean by a Christian, someone who's turned to God and put their trust in Jesus Christ, please remember this, that you are one of the true people of God in the last days. Now you say, are you saying we're in the last days, Pastor Jim? I am. I am. Well, does that mean Jesus is coming tonight? He might. I don't know. He didn't tell me. But what are the last days? The last days are the days in between Jesus' first coming and second coming. So therefore, we are definitely in the last days. We don't know when the last day will be of his coming. So James' audience 
is suffering, okay, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, that they're Jews scattered abroad. James' audience is suffering Jewish Christians scattered, living outside Jerusalem where his ministry was, was based. You might hear the, the, the term uh, diaspora or dispersion when you're reading. That's what this is talking about. And that is his audience. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, he tells us, the, the, Luke writes, that these people were scattered abroad after the persecution. There was incredible persecution in Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and the apostles were preaching the gospel. There was a lot of persecution and the poverty was crushing. It was absolutely crushing. And so people scattered. They went out. So it's quite possible that the congregations that would get this letter, and they'd pass it around from congregation to congregation, were originally Jews from Jerusalem, and James was their original pastor. It's, very, it's not uncommon for people who used to go to this church and now they've moved out of state or they got transferred or something like that to write to me and still in many ways would ask me to advise them as a pastor. That, that's very, very common. I'm not looking to take the place of their pastor, but there is somewhat of, of a connection that takes place, especially people who became Christians here, a connection between them and their first pastor. And I think that James had a lot with that, these people. I don't know for sure. Next, James, next week, Lord willing, he's going to turn to their trials, their suffering and their hard times, and how God is not caught off guard by them, but how God is using them to produce maturity in us and to give us wisdom if we will simply ask for it. Now, it's very interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, which we cited earlier, the Apostle Paul said that he and James preached the same gospel. Now, this is one thing we say about the Bible, that all of the Bible is God's word, but it, it differs in its theological status, if you will, in terms of what it's telling us. So you might read parts of the Old Testament, and then you think, I don't really understand what, how that really fits into everything, and, and I get that. And then you read Romans, and you're like, oh my goodness. So, so some people put it this way. I don't know if I would, but some people say all the Bible is God's word, but some parts are more important for the testimony of Jesus Christ than others. I, I do understand that line of thinking. And so, so when the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he and James and the other apostles preached the same gospel, while we read Romans from the apostle Paul, we, we come to James, and James, if you will, shows us the effect of Romans, the, the outpouring of Romans, how, the, the living out of, of what Romans brings to us theologically. So James is going to urge us to put our faith, our theology, our knowledge of Jesus, our knowledge of God 
into practice. And when we fail, he's going to tell us in chapter 4, we plead for grace. So we plead for grace to become Christians, and we plead for grace to continue walking with God. I mean, that's how you start the Christian life, friend. We said it earlier. We'll say it again. To start the Christian life, if you want to, be, if you want to go to heaven, if you want your sins forgiven and you want to go to heaven, Jesus said you need to repent and believe the good news. Repent. Turn to God. Believe. Put your trust in Jesus. That's the good news, that Jesus lived a perfect life. You don't have to. Jesus died a sinner's death. You don't have to. You simply need to put your trust in him. You say, oh, I, don't, I don't know, man. What, what about all the stuff that I've done? Will he forgive me? You know what James would say? Let me tell you something, man. I was his little brother. I lived with him. I resented my brother, probably resented him because he was always perfect. He was never in trouble. Never did anything wrong. You know the old joke. His parents go, why can't you be more like Jesus? You're all their brother. James would say, you know what? I didn't believe in him. I rejected him. I thought he was a nut job. I wanted to take him home. I wanted to interrupt his Bible studies. I had no, I had no respect for him. And then I met him. But I met him in a different way. I met the risen Christ. And he was different. And he offered me the forgiveness of sins. He said, I'm willing to forget your unbelief. I just want you to put your trust in me. And I did. And he did, a, he did great works in my life or through my life. But none of it was really due to me at all. It was just all due to his grace. You see, we're saved by grace, guys. But we also live by grace. And grace is what carries us along. And as the expression goes, his grace is greater than our sin. And James would tell us, it's by the grace of God. That's the only way you go from being an unbeliever like he was to a servant of the king like he became. That can be you tonight by simply putting your trust in Jesus, desiring to walk with him and follow him. We'll talk more about that Sunday. Until that time, God bless you. Let's pray.